Good evening, and welcome to all of you. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon, and on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth, which jointly present the Faith and Life Lecture Series, it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Uh, we are, I can't believe it, at the end of another series. Um, and thank you for coming out. Don't worry, we will come again in the fall, and I'll tell you more about that later. If you've been to these events before, you know that these are opportunities for us to gather and hear nationally known speakers talk about how faith is connected to different dimensions of everyday life. And we have had a wide variety of topics over the last seven years, and you are in for a treat tonight. We have a well-known author, and uh, you can read her biography in the program. I will not repeat what you can read there. Among other things, she has won the Orange Prize and also the Pulitzer Prize, which isn't a bad start, and there are many other awards she's been given as well. I'll tell you, though, personally, uh, someone introduced me to her work a few years ago uh, by recommending the book Gilead, which I absolutely loved. One of the reviews, I believe, about it talks about the prose and the writing as being luminous, which I would agree with, and um, perhaps it's saying a little too much about myself that when I got to the end, I wept. And if that's all that she had written, it would have been enough. But then I found out that she is also the author of many, many uh, nonfiction essays about theology. And from the perspective of this pastor, at least, I actually think she is one of the most profound Christian thinkers writing today. Um, someone called me yesterday on the phone to ask about the event and how to get here and whether she had to get here at 4 o'clock in the afternoon to get a seat. And she said, you know, I am such a big fan of hers that honestly, I really don't care what she says. I'm just going to be happy to be in her presence. We do hope you have something to say as well. <laughs> but perhaps that takes the pressure off. I'm not sure. Will you help me welcome Marilyn Robinson? It's wonderful to be here. Um, I will begin my, my remarks. It is wonderful to be here. I just don't have any small talk. <laughs> I have arrived at that interesting point in life when the real, realization comes that most of the living I will do I have done already, that my mortal career has in all probability and for most purposes taken its final shape that most of the choices that matter are choices I made a long time ago. So my life has begun rather suddenly to present itself to me as a thing to consider, though not in terms of success or failure, satisfaction or disappointments, since all these categories are too simple, too binary, to capture anything worth reflecting on. Instead, I have begun to think of myself sometimes as the creature of cultural and historical happenstance, a woman living in North America in the 20th and 21st centuries. Born a few generations earlier, born elsewhere, I'd have had a very different life. And if I were born a generation or two later, still in America, my life would no doubt be different again in more ways than I will ever know. As it happened, I spent a long childhood reading old books, 
and I am spending a lengthening adulthood reading more old books. It is odd how a life is itself converting a various substance, of a various experience into its own substance. At any point, I could have chosen otherwise than I did, in theory, at least, though in fact otherwise has never held a particular attraction for me. I felt and I feel that I was and am tending to my soul. Why do I wonder about things that happened 500 years ago? Myself understand, can understand that there might be some more practical use of my time but I have to content my soul. In an exceptional degree, my life has been made up of books, those I've read, those I've written, and those I've seen emerging among the young writers in my classrooms. This last is again an accident of culture and history. As many of you are no doubt aware, the teaching of writing was for a long time an American idea, one of those things we are supposed to have gotten wrong another oafish failure to understand the origins of culture, the nature of genius, and so on. The practice has always attracted its share of scorn. At the same time, it has spread and prospered, and through the decades, it seems also to have benefited a long list of very interesting writers. Now even Europeans have begun to make experiments along these lines. Still, there are those who insist the workshop phenomenon has had a deadening effect on American letters and who deplore the fact that contemporary writers are often associated with the university, another supposedly deadening influence. From time to time, I have almost felt at a loss to defend my own involvement in all this, being as sincere in my devotion to the American literary tradition as most people I know and as loath to believe I have contributed to its decline. Myself might have looked for another way to manage my life, but my soul was pleased and at home. That is to say, from time to time, I've been distracted from the testimony of my own experience. As a matter of fact, I have loved my life as a teacher of writers. I've learned from it. Ten or a dozen gifted people in a room together, bringing their thoughts and insights to bear on a piece of fiction. What a privilege for everyone involved. It may be something new under the sun. Perhaps King David never talked metrics or metaphor with Prince Solomon, or Christopher Marlowe with Thomas Kidd. But if they had, they would not have been the worse for it. At our more modest level, I can say with confidence that we are generally much the better for it, not least because we enjoy a kind of access to one another's thinking we would not have in any other circumstance. And while I am on the subject of privilege, to have spent my life within the community of a great university is an amazing stroke of good fortune. The resources it has given me to support the development of my essays as well as my fiction have been invaluable to me. I might have written more if I had not been teaching, but I'd have thought less or less rigorously, and I'd have learned less. The intersection of my brief Life with the golden age of the American university is an, is an historical accident for which I can never be sufficiently grateful. It is as if my soul, that lover of old books, had found an earthly home, an earthly heaven. There are other peculiarities of our literary culture which have served many of us well. We teach the work of living writers in our universities. 
even of very new or obscure writers, if some assistant professor somewhere finds them interesting. This, is the, this has obvious benefits from the point of view of sustaining a lively contemporary literature. And the fact that writers can make a living without having to force or rush their work is another benefit that comes with our integration of writing into the curriculum. We have a tendency as a culture to doubt the value of what we do, insofar as it departs from other and older models, then to forget our doubts as the innovation becomes custom, and to forget as well that we are indeed doing something singular, except when the occasional voice rises to tell us that we have committed a terrible gaffe with predictable consequences and are swapped with mediocrity and conventionality. We are not in the habit of saying that things have gone well, and that by whatever happy accident we, we find ourselves having arrived at a good place. A few weeks ago, a French journalist and photographer came through Iowa. They were traveling all over the country interviewing writers. They told me that this is a great period in American literature, and they were creating a historical record of it. As a student of the European Renaissance and the American 19th century, I have thought it must be wonderful, a wonderful thing to live in a great era. If it were not for these Frenchmen and others who look on from the outside, it would not have occurred to me that I might in fact be living in just such an era. If nothing is changed by my knowing this, at least as a possibility, why is the thought important to me? It just pleases my soul. Why are we so easily distracted from what is good in life? My subject here is that entity called the soul, that elusive essential self, that companion self rarely known to the world, and then through some undefended moment, some unguarded act, or through some extraordinary achievement of art. Perhaps the old belief in the immortality of the soul proceeded from the sense that such a creature ought to be immoral, immortal. Uh, <laughs> You didn't hear that. <laughs> Perhaps the old belief in the immortality of the soul proceeded from the fact, from the sense that such a creature ought to be immortal, since it seems to be without origin or age, simply there, a presence somehow anchoring our identity and shoring up our always fraying loyalty to our most inward and human selves. As far as I'm concerned, it is a good argument for an atemporal character in human being. But perhaps the idea of its immortality brought the soul into something like discredit, entangling it in dogma and controversy. I wonder to what extent my own sense of soul is something I received culturally, and on the other hand, to what extent it is quite simply a name available to me for an experience of my being that would have been the same if I had had no word for it. And I wonder whether the experience of life and of selfhood is different for those who have no word for it. To confess to the awareness of a soul as one presence among the presences of voices that compose a self would sound like a statement of religious belief entailing other beliefs, in sin and judgment, for example. So the soul is rejected together with religion, or at least with those aspects of religion people find objectionable as if it were an idea and not an experience, a falsification rather than an interpretation of individual consciousness. 
and as an idea or belief, it is taken to distract attention from reality, from the world. This is an inversion of the old religious fear that the world would distract attention from the higher sphere of reality bespoken by the soul. But if the soul is allied with the conscience, as tradition would have us believe, and if conscience reorients us to our most deeply held values, then the soul by any reckoning is exceptionally, acutely, even painfully engaged with the world. Be that as it may, I find my soul another mind, another pair of eyes, mine and not mine, to be perhaps my greatest pleasure in life. Furthermore, I have the experience continually of seeing the evidence of other in other people of the deep inwardness and reflection that I associate with the presence of a soul. I see it in my students, and I try to encourage them to make it present in what they write, though I have probably never used the word soul in a classroom since it is, as I have said, encumbered with so many associations that are extraneous to my meaning. Let us say that the school of thought, still called modern, snatched the soul of Western thought and left it, and left it changeling, figuratively speaking. We've been told for a long time now that religion was and is an illusion, and as a substitute for it, we have been given a set of descriptions of the self and of inward experience that all claim to be scientific, and that, very unscientifically, all claim to be true. If they claimed instead to be descriptive of inward experience, we would each be competent to compare these accounts with our own inwardness and accept or reject them on that basis. But they are oddly consistent with one another in that they undercut the idea of individual self-knowledge. Granted, this kind of knowledge has been the study of the ancient sages and the great philosophers, none of whom has ever suggested that it is to be attained easily. There is nothing simple about it. The attainment of it is widely considered to be the highest work of the self, and if it is never or rarely achieved, still the discipline of the attempt is assumed to yield a very rich life. That is to say, we are properly of interest to ourselves as we have understood ourselves traditionally. We are properly our own attentive companions. This changeling I mentioned is alien and troublesome, but not very interesting or at all companionable. Its desires are simple, rudimentary. They are frustrated, but never modified by the, by the constraints of culture and civilization. That the various or contrary or even contending aspects of inward experience might be in conversation among themselves, however fraught and contentious the conversation might be, is not a consideration. There is only the brute we deny, the id or our biological selfishness, and then the husk of acculturated consciousness and behavior that is imposed on it by society or by some sort of phylogenetic shrewdness that makes us still seekers after our own interests, but unbeknownst to ourselves and even despite ourselves. The old soul was the essence of the individual. The changeling, however otherwise described, is not individualized at all, except as circumstance creates special frictions and intensities that manifest as symptoms. In a degree out of all proportion to their enormous implications, the truth, the truth value of these accounts of the self is not proved, 
It cannot be demonstrated any more than the existence of the soul can be. It may be ungenerous of me to point out again that these theories make the question of their credibility moot by making us all incompetent reporters of our own experience. Absent dogmatic grounds for choosing one and scientific grounds for choosing the other, it seems to me that preference should go to the soul because as a concept it is interesting, complex, and beautiful. And it would open resources of introspection and reflection that my young writers feel are closed to them because they have been taught to defer to the so-called modern thinking as it, as it applies to the human mind. Reading William James' variety of varieties of religious experience, I was struck by the, his assumption that the unconscious mind was something like the soul, attuned to and participating in a higher reality than was available to ordinary consciousness, and that the unconscious mind was accessed or liberated through religious experience. James was an older contemporary of Sigmund Freud, whom he included in a list of writers on the subject of the unconscious, a term now so strongly associated with Freud that many people think he came up with it by himself. James' spirituality was of a kind that made him a frequenter of seances, but he was describing with interest and respect the experiences of conventionally religious people in his time and culture, called then conversion experiences, moments in which individuals were overwhelmed with a sense of awareness of an ultimate reality. People who underwent these conversions felt themselves to be changed, rested out of the smallness of their previous lives, and made capable of living fully within the world as this new insight had revealed it to them. In other words, the unconscious as James understood it opened on a radiant truth that was also reality at its most fundamental and essential. I need hardly say that the culture has preferred another model of the unconscious. Since Freud, it has, thought, it has been thought of as a lesser self, more primitive than the persona we prefer to acknowledge and present to others, and also more primary. It can be concealed more or less effectively. It can be expressed through sublimations that disguise its urges and impulses, but it can never be changed. It can never be outlived, rejected, or exercised. Insofar as the theory reveals a deeper reality, it finds a joyless, snappish creature at the center of the human psyche, not quite vigorous enough to be animal, trapped in the constraints of manners and morality and resentful at its imprisonment. While this being is universal as a feature of humankind, it is solitary in every case, without bonds with anything beyond itself, even including the social person, ego and superego, with whom it is contained, within whom it is contained. Phylogenetic selfishness is the same, a force with its own agenda, evading or misleading conscious intent. The success of this view of the unconscious may have been recommended by the fact that it is undemanding. To live up to our lesser impulses is rarely difficult. And the suggestion that the great virtues, love of neighbor and so on, are always more or less hypocritical, since they inevitably conceal another feeling entirely, diminishes the potency of the claims traditional moral systems have made on us. There is a cost. We lose the belief that reality is intrinsically beautiful and that we can have a knowledge of it that takes us beyond the tedium of narrowness, 
self-interest and self-absorption, a knowledge that awakens us to this beauty and allows us to participate in it. This view of the essential self unites us with the whole of reality, while the other alienates us, it, us from it altogether. This view of the essential self exalts our gifts of perception, while the other gives us nothing more than the assurance that our perceptions are unreliable, especially insofar as they suggest that anything has reality for us to be compared with the reality of our own most primitive fears and desires. Since neither version of the unconscious can claim to be supported by science, and both of them have the largest consequences for our understanding of human nature, of the human place in the world, and even of the nature of the universe itself, what has prompted West Western culture to choose the Freudian over the Jamesian unconscious? Let us say that this choice allowed us to feel we had rid ourselves of our souls, or at least had rid our souls of their authority. If the word soul refers to anything real, could we actually have done this? Rejected it or silenced it? I've been reading an odd, an odd little book, an interesting commentary on this question. It is Spiritual Atheism by Steve Antonoff. It identifies spiritual hunger, the yearning for something more than this life can give us, as the existential discomfort that is an inevitable part of being human. Faith in God has traditionally assuaged this feeling, he says, but now belief in God is no longer possible. Our souls are restless still, but we moderns know there is no God in whom they can find rest. Why is this true? He quotes Nietzsche, various other writers and painters as well, whose work or lives seem to him to attest to the truth of this idea. He quotes the character of Kirillov in Dostoevsky's novel, The Devils. Quote, God is necessary and so must exist, yet I know that he doesn't exist and can't exist. End of quote. Says Antonov, these lines, first spoken in 1873, will plague us for the next thousand years. Of course, these lines were not spoken in 1873. They are words given to a fictional character with, with whom his author should not be assumed to agree. And why should they have any particular impact on our thinking? Even if Kirillov does speak for Dostoevsky, does Dostoevsky, great as he is, have or claim some special authority regarding the existence or non-existence of God? I have the impression that he is widely considered to be a religious writer. If he had questions, so did Job. It is characteristic of the many writers on the, on the modern period to act as though something ethical happened that put an end to thinking on the subject of God's existence. No more of that, case closed. On what imaginable authority can a great question, one that has preoccupied humankind for millennia, be terminated at some arbitrary point in history, as if by an answer that makes both the question and its persistence meaningless. I've noticed a tendency in myself to read books I can expect to disagree with. <laughs> Keeps a glow in my cheek. <laughs> and then to write my next lecture with the latest of these books in hand. Antonov is interesting and unusual in that he does at least acknowledge the reality and complexity of human consciousness. 
In fact, the experience of individual consciousness is central for him, while it is rarely even acknowledged in the generality of the new atheist books one finds on the shelves these days. His response to the existential suffering that, according to him, is the default state of human consciousness is Zen and the practice of meditation. According to Antonov, this really does not solve the problem either, except for a certain few masters who can transcend life and death and experience a realization of the eternal. To me, it seems as though the extraordinary exertions he describes might only demonstrate the, whole, the, the kindly tendency of the brain to respond to duress with a flood of endorphins. <laughs> this is the sort of thing people say about reported experiences they are not inclined to credit, as I know from reading new atheist accounts of religion. My difference from them is that I assume that nothing the brain does, nothing the mind experiences, is without significance. Among the resources and potentialities of the brain, mind, are comfort and beauty. The question is, how readily and naturally can we access them? Do they mean anything? Do they give us any insight into what we are? Antonov says of the lesser moments of Zen meditation, the peak reached by all but a few great practitioners, quote, little excels the thrill of these ecstatic, ecstatic states, the gorgeousness of the mind, the mind in expanse of white frost, the mind brightest silk, consciousness bathed in milk, the, the vibrancy of repose, the tapping into pure health, clear, cold ice suffusing the clarified field of awareness, mind burned away like a cigarette pressed into the center of a leaf, little excels it. The question of what to do next, against the incontrovertible knowledge that these are mere coats of tranquility, varnished over the wound, excels it. I'm still quoting him. I'll read that again because this is his summary statement. The question of what to do next against the incontrovertible knowledge that these are mere coats of tranquility varnished over the wound excels it. What do you do when there is nothing more to do? This is Antonov's favorite koan. It can only mean that the sensation of insight is mere sensation and terminates in itself. The gorgeousness of the mind is a phrase and a concept I endorse heartily. As a friend of lucid thought, I feel obliged to point out that it would be the leaf, not the cigarette, that is burned away. <laughs> Stop doing that. And I struggle a little to imagine the varnishing of a wound. <laughs> but these are quibbles over against the celebration of the mind as a wonder, a thing to be profoundly enjoyed. It is an acknowledgment that I consider an essential discovery for anyone who would write well, granting that writing can be fully as painful a discipline as rigorous meditation. And I consider it a thing to be assumed by anyone who wishes to be receptive to the best that literature or any other art can accomplish. It has been a tendency in higher education in recent decades to treat the arts as data to break them down into psychological and sociological categories so that they seem interpretable in the same way that society at large seems interpretable, flattening out the special character that derives from their origins in a kind of meditation and excluding from consideration the difficult beauty that comes with a demanding use of the mind. 
This tracks the tendency in modern thought to devalue individual experience by subordinating it to demographics, another response to what Adenoff calls the wound, the aching privilege, and privilege is my word, not his, of irreducible human solitude, that is to say, uniqueness. In these matters of the soul, uniqueness is the issue behind all the others. If I could be understood by my gender, my social or economic class, my ethnicity or religious acculturation, or by the presumably ethical consequences of living in the West after 1873, after that utterance of the fictional Kirillov by which we will all be dogged for the next thousand years, <laughs> then there would be an essential similarity between me and one cohort or another, some of them very large indeed. My thinking would be transparent to women, if not men, to the prosperous, if not the poor, to liberal Protestants, if not Roman Catholics. My loneliness would be substantially assuaged. And in some degree, it is assuaged by the fact that certain readers do respond to things I write. As it happens, however, many of my best readers are men, and many of them, male or female, are Catholic or Jewish or non-religious. Clearly, something is at work demographics does not describe. I find this deeply heartening. The descriptions we make of one another in the mass are always brutal. They are reductionist in a degree that assures they will be wrong. And denying our ability to share understanding across supposed barriers is at very best a kind of mischief done in the service of petty interests. To fold everything we have made or can make into this soup of dubious generalization is simply perverse. But it has the merit of avoiding or evading the problem of individual consciousness with all that implies about the complexity of any human being and of the human race altogether. The vastness of the universe is impossible to imagine. As I always tell my students, the human brain is the most complex object known to exist in the universe. Therefore, the complexity of any mind is also imponderable. Multiply this complexity by six billion then compound it by the factor of innumerable phenomena of culture and relationship and circumstance. Only God would not find the problem overwhelming. No wonder we are so inclined to try to remake ourselves as lesser beings. Professor Antonoff says, quote, the craving for heightened existence through heightened sensation is central to the story of the search for enlightenment in much of this generation of spiritual atheists. We seek cosmic splendor, capital C, capital S, relieved that there is no divine law, capital D, capital L. It is always fair to assume that he and those for whom he speaks satisfy conventional standards of goodness, as most people do. Still, in dismissing divine law, he strips away a layer of complexity from at least the Western version of human consciousness, as atheism does as well. Divine law assumes that there is, in effect, a second nature to which human beings are uniquely answerable. Much that it requires runs counter to nature in the ordinary sense of the word. At least seven of the Ten Commandments could be prefaced, thou shalt not seek thine own advantage by the following means. 
Available forms of self-seeking are stealing, killing, swearing falsely, ignoring the needs and rights of elders, slandering, disrupting your own or another's family, wanting what you have no right to acquire. These commandments require awareness, restraint, imagination of other lives. If natural law is selfish, divine law is soulish. The consensus, the consensus relative to the ways of the natural world seems to be that the seeking of advantage or the assertion of it is universal and in its way benign. No one can doubt that we humans participate in nature thus understood, even pushing far beyond the limits self-interest would set for us, which accounts for the superaddition of divine law. Let us say for purposes of argument that it is in fact not divine but human law, and that divine origins have been claimed for it to anchor it against all the countervailing instincts that would otherwise sweep it away. Then its existence is still an argument for human exceptionalism. We understand ourselves well enough to attempt to step out of the stream of nature, to try to constrain what in another creature would have the look of biological imperative. Whatever the origins of these laws and their like, we know that where they are breached, life can become a nightmare. This is a fact in need of serious attention that clearly falls under the rubric human complexity. And it is a re reality we would love to be excused from, a major part of the burden of consciousness. Antonov calls the loneliness of the self, the I, and its inability to find anything in the world that can satisfy it a wound, an inescapable suffering. I will confess that considering the real trouble that engulfs so many lives, suffering without source or content strikes me as a little precious, always allowing for the possibility that it is made to seem so by the sufferer's unwillingness to acknowledge its actual meaning. Be that as it may, Antonov's response is to discover and enjoy an aesthetic of consciousness through meditation. This is fine as far as it goes, certainly much to be preferred to the brain as com computer model to be found elsewhere among the atheists, and more to my taste than the mind as snare and delusion model that has made too many religious people fearful of experiences and ideas that might pose questions for them. Still, I am struck by the solipsism of it, how much that otherwise moves or intrigues us is excluded by it. Our circumstance is so remarkable that if a reasonable engagement with the larger world, including the human world, can only be entertained at the cost of a self-awareness that entails existential suffering, engagement is surely cheap at the price. Immanuel Kant said, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the more often and more enduringly reflection is occupied with them the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. This is beautiful consciousness too, engaged by outwardly directed perception and by human interaction. And if the evidence of history is to be taken into account, the tendency of the Babylonians to ponder the stars or of the Egyptians to venerate wisdom, it is also a natural use of the human mind. Art is an expression of the beauty of consciousness. Science has raised interesting questions about the role of consciousness in bringing what we call reality into being, 
in the ways in which we think we know reality, at any rate. Certainly, the mind orders and characterizes experience continuously. One definition of, an, of art might be the mind aware of itself in the process of engaging experience. Wallace Stevens wrote about the poem of the act of the mind, quote, the poem of the mind in the act of finding what will suffice. I take this to mean that the poem is not the pattern of words that appears on the page, but the act of the mind in the making of the poem. Consciousness, like a gesture, inscribing grace on thin air and stolid gravity. Stephen says what the moderns all say, that it, quote, the mind, uh, quote, has not always had to find. The scene was set. It repeated what was in the script, end of quote. In some unspecified past time, the moderns tell us, there was truth, faith, certitude, Stevens is utterly different from most of them in that he assigns high aesthetic value to the experiences of this world, assumed to be stripped of the old verities that fostered art in other generations. But has any good poem, any psalm or ballad or sonnet ever been anything other than an act of the mind, a new address of the imagination to the wealth and complexity of experience? And why have so many of us surrendered the language that would allow us to fully acknowledge this complexity? I stole the title of this lecture, lecture from William Butler Yeats, another great novelist, uh, another great modernist. As I read the poem by his name, as I read the poem by, his, uh, by this name, self, the worldly experience of the human person, has the last word rejecting the call of soul to the austerities of attentiveness to a reality beyond this one. This is a familiar pattern in Western thought in the modern period. From time to time, it has no doubt been true that the world and the flesh have been disparaged in Christendom, and that correction away from this tendency and toward greater readiness to see goodness in the creation God called good has been necessary and wholesome. I will propose that when either this life or the next one is devalued, the source of the problem is a too sharp distinction between self and soul made by Yeats and by the culture itself. Neither should be thought of as eclipsing the other. Perhaps I am making a distinction where there is no difference. I would say that the dearest possession of any self is its soul, and the essential identity of any soul is itself. We experience selfhood by intuition, and we experience soulhood in the same way, intuitively. No one knows how we construct and retain the particular hoard of memories, preferences, affections, fears, and so on that constitute identity. The identity, we, the identity we proceed from and can change only in degrees and with great difficulty. The self that can assert itself to our embarrassment and irritation. No one can explain the feeling of an essential integrity, untouched even by our most disheartening experience of self that we call soul. Granted, like the mystics, we sometimes speak of the loss of self as the moment in which we realize ourselves as soul. If we grant the meaningfulness of these terms, we must also recognize the complexity of their interrelations. When I write or speak in these terms, I am often said to be criticizing science. No. Kirillov, Dostoevsky, 
Nietzsche and Freud, too, proceeded from an understanding of the natural world and of science itself that is by now for all purposes as archaic as the geocentric universe. Sometimes for brevity's sake, I say I am critiquing the curriculum, but that isn't quite true either. These writers and the generations of their adherents have had so much influence on the history of thought in the 19th and 20th and now the 21st centuries that no meaningful education can exclude them. The question I want to pose is this. Why does the curriculum present itself as dogma? Why does it not teach intellectual autonomy rather than simply perpetuating the, the hegemony, as they say, of the very long dead? How can it be meaningful to say that since X choose a writer or an event, there is only one way in which the questions that have preoccupied humankind through millennia can be thought of, not as having been answered, but as having been discredited and closed? Is that really how wonderful, fallible human thought proceeds? I ponder discarded models of self and soul, not as rejection of the modern, an evasion of its austere truths, but as a way of understanding its high-handedness, its essential poverty, its unsustainable yet somehow authoritative claims to having attained to a state of understanding that is beyond error. For a long time, it has acted as a kind of intellectual kudzu, swamping out other life forms. Yes, there is post and post-post this and that, but the question at the center of all questions what is human nature, is addressed in terms that are always the same, or at least entirely interchangeable, and always brutally reductionist. Given a low estimate of human nature, nothing we make or do can mean much or matter much. My students have been instructed in a hermeneutics, so-called, that reduces the whole tradition to a furtive or conscious articulation of demographic interests and biases, and this is entirely consistent with the notion that there is no true moral or intellectual individualism, and that as human beings, we simply can't be up to much. However brilliantly, we conceal our essential paltriness under the appearance of profundity. All this is disheartening, but another thing they have learned is literally disabling. They have learned directly or by implication that all the great questions are settled, all the great ideas are propounded, and bright as they may be, vital as they may be, their intellect and their passion have arrived on stage when the play has already ended and all the bows have been taken. If they were in the sciences, they would know better, of course, and if they had a proper love for their souls, they would know better. I began by saying that a certain habit of disparagement to which we are prone as a culture had distracted me from enjoying my moment and circumstance, my life, as fully as it has deserved, and from admiring the accommodations the culture has made to the practice of my art and many other arts. This is a minor instance of the much larger phenomenon of a general tendency, also culturally reinforced, to distract us all from the most interesting experience in the universe, that is, the experience of being human. It is strange that this impoverishment comes to us through our splendid universities. It is strange that the universities and the culture can be so sophisticated in a million particulars and so credulous overall. 
I do not want to seem to single out the university, which I refer to often because it looms large in my own life, a fact for which I am very grateful, as I have said. The church, the churches, the institutions of religion have a greater responsibility to encourage and sustain a sense of the richness of the life God has given us to enjoy, not least in making us capable of, of a deep awareness of the endlessly rich experience of being human. Is there a contemporary theology of the soul? I'm not aware of one. There seems always to have been the notion of the soul as hostage, certain to be sunk in flames if the mortal self acts badly and sat safely on a cloud somewhere if the mortal self does well. This is as remote from my meaning as anything could be. Certainly it is of no use to us in enhancing the experience of being what we are, valuing the givens of our existence, our living in time. Certainly it is of no use in helping us to see the sacred mystery that is all other being. I usually resist the distinction that is sometimes made between the spiritual and the religious. The, the distinction should not be possible. If it is, then perhaps this is true because the churches have made ill-considered or unconscious concessions to a kind of thought that crucially impoverishes religious thought. The belief in human sanctity rests crucially not on one line of, or another of ancient text, not one reading or another of the phenomena of evolution, but on how we know ourselves and how we experience the encounter with one another. And this, as it happens, has everything to do with the writing life. Any good writer sets out to give the most scrupulous report language and consciousness permit of what? Whatever comes to mind, whatever makes a sufficient claim on the writer's attention on the grounds of some felt urgency or strangeness or humanity. Follow your intuitions, I say to my students. Trust your minds. If you feel there is something of substance there, it will be there. Respect the truth of what, in terms of a fiction, your mind tells you is true. And when I give myself the same advice, the word I use is not mind, it's soul. The word has passed out of the modern conversation, but I know what I mean by it. And if they do not know the soul by name, they learn to know it as experience. Thank you. a chance to ask her some questions. Dave, where are you? With the microphone. Okay. Dave is going to walk around with the microphone in a moment. If you have some questions you'd like to ask uh, Marilyn, you are welcome to do that. Before we get to the Q&A, though, just a couple of quick announcements for me. First of all, the next event, I mentioned uh, that we are hard at work putting next year's Faith and Life series together. The next event is mentioned in your program tonight. It will be on Thursday, October 14th. Uh, with Dr. Brene Brown, who will have a book coming out then about uh, the gifts of imperfection. I hope you can join us for that. If you would like to be reminded about that, uh, if you, like me, would not be able to remember that without a reminder, then you can give us your email address and we will send you an email reminder when it gets closer to that date. Um, and you can also, on these green sheets, offer other suggestions for speakers. Um, we are 
three or four people already confirmed next year, so we're close to finalizing the series for next year, but there may still be room for one other if any of you have a good idea. Okay? Good. Uh, you're going to have a chance to purchase books after the Q&A, and Marilyn will inscribe them for you, but if there are some questions now, uh, she will take those for a few minutes. So, Dave. I really like questions. <laughs> Dave, there's one right behind you. Oh, okay. Is that on? I think at the beginning, um, when you were speaking, I might have misunderstood what you said, but I wonder if you could clarify if I'm on, even on your track of what you were referring to, of with, that it was an American idea for teaching writing and that Europeans are looking at that now as maybe having value. But then I believe you said something about um, that validity of it in, in the sense of arts and letters and um, the university value maybe isn't accepted as university? I'm sure I'm reiterating uh, Actually, um, I teach at Iowa, and Iowa is the oldest writing program on the planet, 75 years old. Um, it is, not quite, it is a, um, an American phenomenon. It was, for some reason, there's a sort of pious skepticism about whether or not you can quote unquote teach writers, which is a question like, can you teach violinists? Can you teach ballet dancers? Of course you can. You know, you find people that have a gift and you enhance the gift. It's an art. In any case, uh, but it has been uh, very, very much a peculiarity of our own teaching and literary culture. Um, it it uh, has spread all through the United States now. I think there, I mean, there are a great many writing programs, not only uh, in the universities and high schools and so on, but also in uh, prisons and in hospitals and so on. You find them emerging spontaneously among doctors and so on, you know, peer groups that get together and compare their writing with each other. Um, it's something that uh, I think has great value and in many cases, uh, makes people aware of another interesting use of their minds, even if they never have any serious aspirations as far as publishing is concerned. Um, the, there has been a lot of resistance to it in other countries as, as being American in the sense that we think we can just do something because we want to do it, you know, sort of. And, <laughs> and um, so in, it, there are a few programs in, in Britain now um, there are in some in Canada. There have been for quite a long time in Canada. But, um, and I think there's one or two in Germany. But in general, it has been an American phenomenon that has been slow to spread to the rest of the world. Um, the, I'm going to France in May, and one of the things that I'm going to do there is conduct with some other writers a sort of experimental workshop among English-speaking French students, just so they can sort of test the viability of this model, you know. Uh, because they, they also have begun to be interested in it as an idea. 
one of the things that I think is really valuable, and I sort of talked about it at the beginning, but we, we do undervalue the importance of, our, of the activity of our writers in our universities. That, that they're not only teaching, but they, they go around like this, you know, and um, find out what's happening in the rest of the country and, you know, read to audiences who decide that they'll go home and write something that turns out to be very interesting or, you know what I mean? But in any case, we have English departments teaching living writers, which is very unusual in the world. Living writers are considered a sort of contemptible life form. <laughs> when that pulse is gone, then you can start being really, you know, <laughs> accepted. Um, but in any case, we, what that means is that we have lots of, of people who have refined taste, good judgment, reading things that are contemporary and teaching them. And so in, we have a, a, a very um, self-aware, articulate, contemporary literary culture in a, in a degree that's unusual uh, because, because of that. Um, so anyway, it is, uh, these things are American and they, they have spread or not spread basically from, from this culture. I enjoyed your speech very much, but I don't think I'm uh, smart enough to understand it all. But what I hear you talking about is um, the human soul is exposed to dogma and creeds, but what you are emphasizing is the actual inward experience. And uh, in light of that, could you talk about your novel, Home? I checked it out at the library and I've only re read the blurb on the cover, and I sense that this book is a retelling of the prodigal son story from the gospel. Could you comment on that? Uh, well, it, it is, it's, re it's, I mean, it certainly has heavy allusions to the prodigal son story, which I've always been fascinated by. It. It's an extraordinary parable. Um, I, uh, I believe in the soul, you know, I mean, it's one of those things that I became aware of because, you know, I sort of wandered out of my dream one day and found out that other people did not use this concept as freely as I do. Um, I believe that, that uh, to understand a character in a certain sense, you have to have an understanding of the soul, that soul. You have to conjure the sense of that soul. And it's something much more profound than anything that you can know about someone in terms of biography or self-presentation or anything else. Um, it, and so, I mean, to the extent that I really, you know, the truth of that is very palpable to me. I test what I do against that idea of any character that I write. So there's a way in which it, all, my all my fiction is about the soul. Yeah, in view of what you just said, all my fiction is about the soul. Um, Ruth and Sylvie and Lucille are women. Um, Gloria is a remarkable woman. 
but John and John Ames and Jack and Robert Boughton are men and seem to be the place where you have known yourself, written about the soul, experienced consciousness most profoundly. So my simple question is, why did you choose men? Why did you become so amazingly perceptive about the soul inside a male character, three male characters? Well, I'm glad to have your testimony that I am insightful about the male character. <laughs> um, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, when I wrote Housekeeping, um, I didn't intend to have only female characters of any significance in it, but I would write in male characters and they didn't work and I'd take them back out and it was like, you know, like if you're making a painting and something, you know, you get out the blade. Um, the, um, so I sort of assumed over the years that I was doing everything else that if I wrote more fiction, the characters would be female, the point of view would be female. And uh, then I, it just happened. I was in Cape Cod at Christmas and uh, I suddenly had John Ames in my head. I, uh, I, knew who he, I knew his essential circumstance. He's not, he's not modeled on anyone in, in life. Uh, he's probably a composite of some sort. But uh, I suddenly just felt that as, he, as if he were there. And um, I mean, not in any spooky way, but you know what I mean, well in my head. <laughs> and uh, it was always a pleasure to write. I never felt any difficulty or any anxiety about him. I just felt as if I knew him, you know. Um, came as a surprise to me. It was a welcome surprise, you know. It, you know, it makes you makes you realize again that you don't know what's on your mind or what your mind is capable of. Um, but that it's the same. I mean, I I felt at ease with all those male characters, and they were mine to write about. And that's I can't give a more rational sounding explanation than that. Thank you. Um, could I ask something um, very specific about predestination and then maybe let it be um, uh, broader as well? But as long as we're talking about Old Bowden and, uh, and Ames, would they have read um, Barth's um, preface, the 1942 preface, where he um, disagreed with Calvin on predestination? And um, would, so, it, you know, would they have? I guess just that specific. Sorry to to do that here. But how does predestination also, in your own mind, fit into this larger thing about soul? Uh, so something very specific, and then something larger. Well, um, I frankly, my understanding of, of <laughs> Ames and Bowden is that they had read the commentary on Romans. Maybe I wasn't fair to them, but. I didn't think of their reading Bart beyond that, frankly. Um, the um, <clears throat> question of, of uh, predestination comes up very often. Uh, you know, it's the only two major theologians who have never espoused or defended predestination are John Chrysostom and John Wesley. Luther, of course, wrote at great length about predestination. Um, Calvin did. Um, Ignatius of Loyola believed in it. Thomas Aquinas believed in it. Uh, and St. Augustine famously believed in it. 
Um, I think that for all of them, I mean, not only, I mean, if you see what Calvin wrote about it, he's just using biblical texts over and over again that have the very strong implication of chosenness and some this and some that and so on. Um, it's a problem, uh, it's a problem throughout Christian thought insofar as Christian thought assumes uh, omniscience, omnipotence. Um, it's, it's been artificially isolated as if it were a problem of Presbyterians, but it's, <laughs> it's a problem of Christendom. Um, I think that, I mean, for my own, for myself, I think that there are major things that we don't understand, like time and causality and so on. And so words like that are sort of placeholders for another concept which might be called the faithfulness of God if, as Calvin was doing, for example, you use the idea to comfort people rather than to doom them, you know. Um, but in any case, it is, a, it is a, an issue that comes up. It's, you know, in religious conversation very often, I think, as it just did now. Of course, I provoked it. Um, and it has to do, in a way, with how we experience ourselves, how free we actually feel, how, how constrained by our own uh, more regrettable impulses and so on we take ourselves to be. I think it's a question that comes up naturally in the course of people living out a life that is difficult in ways that, if they stand back from it, they could have predicted, et cetera, you know, which is all of us, I'm sure. I'd like to ask a question about your fiction also. Gilead and Home are certainly independent, separate novels, and yet they happen concurrently. However, the endings are very different. It seems as if Ames and Jack, or the, the relationship between Ames and Jack, is very different in the, in the two novels. And Ames blesses Jack in Gilead, but doesn't at all in Home. And I wonder if you'd comment on that. Well, one thing that has to be remembered, of course, is that, that, that Gloria is the point of view character in Home, and she doesn't see Ames bless Jack. You know, I mean, I couldn't report something that she couldn't possibly have been privy to. Um, there's a, you know, in, in uh, Gilead, you know that Ames is ill at ease with Jack and never satisfied with his response to Jack. But you see it from the inside because you know he wishes things were otherwise and so on. In home, you see the outside of it. You see the ineptitude of whatever you want to call it that embarrasses him and that he regrets. You see the manifestations of suspicious behavior that he wishes that he were free of and so on. So basically, I think the difference in Ames is the difference between knowing what his feelings are and seeing how they are or are not manifesting outwardly. Um, I think people are, people are born with varying degrees of intuition, and you talked a little bit about the importance of intuition, and I'm wondering if you think it can be developed, and if so, how? I think, I think intuition is just basically a, a name for generalized attention. 
you know? I mean, I think I even probably have a little bit of like scientific um, <laughs> endorsement for that view. That actually, you know, when people are capable of taking in a great deal of information relatively indiscriminately out of experience, and then s some people, if they develop the habit, they can sort of precipitate significant information out of a field of, of experience without necessarily knowing what it is that they're putting together, you know? So in intuition almost always has an experiential basis, a kind of knowledge. Um, I think that, uh, you know, attention is the basis of it. They, we, don't, we don't notice things if we can't place this, we place significance outside ourselves or outside routine patterns of attention. Um, I think that, you know, people do things like going on retreats and all that sort of thing, and I think basically it's, it's in order for them to have a fuller experiential vocabulary, you know, from which they can then reappraise things in ways that will feel intuitive because it proceeds from a broader field. This lady has been very patient. <laughs> Thank you. I have another question as to predestination, but as to character. So it's really a question about writing process. Do you see, I'm wondering how you go about the writing process, if you focus on character and then the story develops from there, or if you know what's going to happen to your character. I know Joyce Carol Oates doesn't write the beginning until she's written the end and writes them together, and John Irving writes the end and works backward. Just wondering about your process and how that works. Well, I, uh, Home, of course, was different from anything else I've written because the arc is predetermined. But um, in general, I stay with characters. And the test for everything is whether it feels right and whether it sounds right, and, you know. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about writing when you get a well-established character is that you pretty well know what they would say or not say and all that sort of thing. Um, I don't, the idea of plot has always bothered me. I don't even encourage my students to use the word. I discourage them from using the word. Uh, because I think, of, uh, for my purposes at least, uh, fiction can't be invented by the non-writing aspect of your mind. It has to be, it has to come together out of that kind of concentration. So basically, I don't have an orderly way of going about writing. I write obsessively when something's on my mind. I procrastinate obsessively when nothing in particular is on my mind. That's really an interesting question. It is an interesting question. Um, for me, you know, there are certain things like, I, for, for John Ames, uh, I just, in the first instance, I sort of imagined an, an elderly man sitting at a desk writing a letter for a child on the floor that is, you know. Um, and then, then I just started from there. I mean, I, the, the first line in the book is the first line I wrote. Um, it's, it's strange. I think that I have all these theories, you know. Yeah. And here I have an audience. I have a theory. But the, 
I do think that one of the things that, that the mind is doing continuously is making sort of hypothetical constructs of, of reality. You know, um, you, you were in a situation, you appraised the situation, what might happen, what did it mean? Um, you uh, re think about things that have happened and you reconstrue them in your mind often in a way that would make it a possible explanation for what happened next, you know. If you have something like a job interview, you can replay it 10 times and either you were great or you were terrible, you know, that sort of thing. So that I think that there's a, a it's just a part of, of uh, how human beings function in the world that they, they fictionalize in the sense of creating hypotheses continuously. And then they also dream. And I think that, that the, the making of narrative is, is basically a, an activity of sort of cognitive co coherence. You know, and, and anticipation and assimilation. And, and uh, when you do it yourself or when you draw someone else into the experience as you do it, you're stimulating, I think, something that is a deeply natural function of consciousness. That's a theory of mine. No, not at all. Well, I tell them, I tell them, um, if you imagine a reader, imagine somebody who's smarter than you are, somebody's taste is better than yours, you know? Uh, I, I'll write up, never, never condescend, never. Um, and to the extent that I imagine an, an audience, I mean, that is, that's what I think also, you know. Question about the writing process again. Um, how do you navigate the writing process along with family commitments or commitments? What's Can't quite mind? hear you, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, I had, oh, here we go. <laughs> um, I have a question about your writing process, and I wonder how, through time, you've navigated um, accomplishing your writing with. Along, along with family commitments and life commitments and like what your process is. I know some people will set aside an hour a day or, or will take a weekend or, you know, how, how did you do that? Well, some people would say that I'm not the person to ask. <laughs> Shelves do not groan under my collected works. But, <laughs> um, I really, I have never, I have uh, really enjoyed my life. You know, I've enjoyed teaching, I've enjoyed bringing up children. Um, I, I've enjoyed reading things that may or may not ever be of any imaginable use to me. I write when I feel like writing, but I've never considered myself to be basically uh, devoted to that work. Partly because I think that uh, if you get that, if you start feeling that you are, if you're writing, it's a lot thinner for one thing. I met a woman in France who'd written a hundred novels. And uh, I don't aspire to have written a hundred novels. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have written novels that I'm happy to have written. Occasionally, 
we might experience some insight to which we attribute our mind's eye, having seen something. A few years ago in a men's group at our church in Excelsior, uh, while we were learning contemplative prayer, it occurred to me that I needed to learn to see with my soul's eye. And as a two-part question, have you had the experience yourself of seeing with your soul's eye? And part two, do you have any advice for a non-writer on how we might be able to get ourselves to do this? Well, hmm. I, I don't quite understand, maybe in some deep way I don't understand the question because I, you know, I, I, I think you ought to have your soul's eye ready to hand <laughs> under many circumstances, you know? Um, I don't think, um, I think we have an overly rigid model of effective consciousness in the sense that we're sort of trained, we have a, a work ethic, which is admirable in many ways. We have, uh, we're, we're very sensitive, I think, to conditioning that we receive from peers and from the culture and so on. We think we know what to think, we know, think we know how to act, we think we know what is expected. And this is, you know, it makes society run so smoothly in many cases, except when, of course, some bad idea spreads. But there's always the individual self, there's always the difference between anyone's self and any group. There's always the newness of any circumstance, you know. And that's what I take to be seeing with the soul's eye. Uh, and perhaps I'm just making a different definition than you would make. That the things harden into convention. And, you know, I mean, here we are, you know, this little speck of, speck of nothing in the universe. And here we are shooting beams of light that are supposed to reach the edge of the universe and bounce or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Here we are measuring the expansion of something billions of years old. You know, um, I mean, any objective account of the universe that just went by the relative size of the dots would say we were utterly negligible, you know? And here we are, somehow or other, collectively in this place doing these things. Um, there's, there's something profoundly uncanny about what human beings are. Our utter otherness from all the roaring and combusting and frigidity that surrounds us is in this creation. And uh, I'm very bent on attentiveness to that. I consider this worldliness to have two meanings, one of them being distracted by socially conventional desires and obligations and so on. The other being a sense of the utterly amazing character, what we are and where we are. And uh, that second is soul enough for me, really. Let's take one more question. Could you comment about the uh, students you're teaching today compared to years back? The the kind of promise you see, or the kind of works they're writing, or just a little comparison, what you see there? Um, I'm really 
I mean, I've always liked my students. I've always been impressed by them, but I think they're getting better and better, frankly. Um, I think partly it's because um, they're, you know, they are more various. They're drawing on more various experiences. They are not trying to write like God rest his soul, that great writer Raymond Carver. Um, and they're very serious and impressive as, as individual people. Um, and they have a you know a lot of unformed metaphysical interests, many of them. Um, a student of mine, he was his, my student ten years ago, just won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, Paul Harding, his name is, he wrote a book called Tinkers, which is on the New York Times bestseller list, I understand. Um, he, he published it with a tiny, tiny publishing house, Bellevue Hospital Publishing. <laughs> and it came out in a tiny little edition. He was paid $1,000 late. It came out in a tiny little edition. Booksellers on the West Coast noticed it. And one of them called him up and said, I'm going to make this a bestseller on the West Coast. And so they began pushing this book, a beautiful little book. It became a bestseller on the West Coast. Then everybody started noticing it and reviewing it. And at the end of the story is he just won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, it's an extremely beautiful book, very lofty, very philosophical. You know, I'm very proud of it. Um, <laughs> I am. I mean, it's, you know, I, I thought, I can actually retire now, because... <laughs> but our students often do well. He's just exceptional in many ways. But he, you couldn't have a better, a better writer emerging in, in very, very many ways. He's a profound man and a deep reader of Karl Barth. Well, we Thank were you. speaking about before. Before you leave, before you leave, we were talking before about Q and A sessions and how they kind of go one of two ways: either no one asks anything, or you could go all night. I get the sense we could spend a lot of time here, but I want to respect your time. You can chat more with her out there. I mentioned it's the end of the series for this year, and I do want to offer a few thanks. First of all, thanks to all of you for coming to these events. It is wonderful to have you here and supporting it. I want to thank Jeff Elstad, who has been with the series from the very beginning and, and blesses us with his music before and afterwards. And I want to thank all of the people who support the series financially. It is not one of the budget items of the two churches that present it. It is supported entirely from organizations and individuals. They are listed here. I will not read them to you tonight. But many of the people who support it are here, and I think they deserve our, pra our praise as well. And then finally, of course, I want to thank you. We have been looking... We've been looking forward to having Marilyn Robinson here all year. Uh, it's a thrill to have her in this space. I'm glad you were able to join us. And as a small token of our appreciation, we have a small granite plaque with the Faith and Life logo, which says, with thanks to Marilyn Robinson for bringing faith to life. And we do thank you very much indeed. Thank you.